Welcome to Listen to Me, a multi-voiced exploration of the city with 21 guests sharing their personal experiences of Milan's contemporary art, architecture, design, music, fashion, and literature. We explore each theme in four episodes. Today, Milan is one of the international fashion capitals, but how did it become so important? It was not until the 70s, when Valtalbini brought the first fashion show to Milan from Florence, later followed by Missoni, that Milan started to become a fashion hub. In those days, fashion was all focused in Florence. When I first started working in the sector, Turin was actually the fashion capital. That was where all the tailors were, and there was also a trade show called Samia, something that I think hardly anyone knows about anymore. At the time, Florence was home to the Pitti fashion show. Then there's the high-end fashion of Rome. It didn't exist in Milan. Milan was the home of design, and to quite a degree also art. It was later with Albini that pret a began the likes of Armani, Versace. A boom started in which Milan became the fashion capital of Italy. All the photographers were here, all the models were here. Then I worked for many years at Vogue, so I got to see all of the excitement which later moved to New York. But for many years it was in Milan, a period that began towards the end of the 70s and continued through the 80s and 90s, Even today, Milan is still recognized for its fashion and design. That was Carla Sozzani, a very famous name in the fashion world. She's the creator of Corso Como Dieci, the first concept store in the world, which we will be talking more about in another episode. For many years, Carla and her sister Franca worked for fashion magazines like Vogue and Elle, So she is the perfect person to ask how Milan became a fashion capital, as well as if she thinks Milan can remain the fashion capital in the future. Well, I'm completely head over heels with Milan. So much so I think it will become the fashion capital of Europe. I'm not just saying this because because London has cut itself off and Berlin has never been able to do it. So I think that between Rome and Milan, it's obvious that Milan is the fashion capital. You can't take that away from it. So there will always be this sort of wrestling match, let's say, between Milan and Paris. However, one of the great things that happened after 2015 was the famous Expo, which turned out to be a disaster in all of the other cities in the world, was in the most extraordinary and unexpected way suddenly made foreigners view Milan in a different way. Because they would say, oh, Milan is so boring. Now they say, isn't Milan beautiful? Aren't the secret gardens of Milan beautiful? Because that really is a lovely walk. Milan is full of gardens that people don't know about. But it's not just Milan's beauty that has made it a world fashion capital. It's also, and above all, thanks to its savoir-faire, as affirmed by Satoshi Kuwata, the emerging Japanese designer who moved his Sechu brand to Milan after working in London, Paris and New York. I remember one story is that I was living in London. I used to work for a tailor called Huntsman & Son. We used to make a suit for royal family. 
royal family used to go to Tuscany or Venice, but their suit was too heavy. So they asked Italian tailor, who was really good at making shirts, to make a lighter weight suit. And this became a really trendy. And as a designer, I've been to do a production in China, America, both East and West Coast, in Japan. And did some production. I have experience in um, Africa too, Kenya, Madagascar, uh, Morocco, and France. I have to say Italy is the best because it's really direct. Italian factory is almost you working with um, Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo. They sculpt the garment, which is something I was really taught in Saviro. Making a suit is not making a garment. It's a sculpt in the body into something beautiful. You need to understand three-dimensional shape. So when I start, you know, when I started thinking about doing my own company, I did some trial in Japan because um, I wanted to do something mix of European culture and Japanese culture. You know, that's the meaning of my branding. And I did a try in Japan. It's been so long to develop something with Japanese factory, but everything became too flat. The Japanese people only have 70 years of Western clothing. People used to wear kimono. I mean, they still do now. So the approach is completely different. And the UK, some of the company are really good around big maison like Alexander McQueen. They have amazing atelier. But in Italy, it's million times more people working. So the technique are passed on to younger generation too. We still talk about, you know, there's no younger generation working on it, but still compared to other country, Italian people are really skillful. This centralization of fashion in Milan also reflects in the style of its inhabitants. Let's listen to Fabio Quaranta, fashion designer and artist who moved from Rome to Milan. In my opinion, Milanese fashion has a really great quality that we sadly tend to forget. You know, when you leave your house, you realize that the people around you, particularly the previous generations, both men and women, have what I can only call a style that's unique to anywhere else in the world. I believe this style, which you could call a little bit middle class, but also eccentric in some way, is part of the DNA of fashion in Milan. I'm really attracted to this style because it's so natural. I see it in the way people carry it so effortlessly, which is obviously what makes the clothes look so elegant. I don't think I've seen this effortlessness in this style of dress in any other part of the world. But this attention to the way people dress and look is not something new in Milan. In the early 1800s, French author Stendhal exalted the beauty and elegance of the Milanese women. And if we look back even further in time, we can lose ourselves in our admiration of the extremely elegant Cecilia Gallerani, portrayed by Leonardo da Vinci in the painting Lady with an Ermine, housed today in Krakow. The carefully coiffured hair, the clothes and jewellery convey the ostentation of a Milan that yearned to be the Athens of the Renaissance leaving its mark in both men's and women's fashion alike. To demonstrate this, we're going to visit the Bagatti Valsecchi Museum. It's in the very heart of the Quadrilatero della Moda, the fashion quarter, delimited by Via Monte Napoleone, 
Via della Spiga, Via Manzoni, and Corso Venezia. The city's bastion of high-end fashion. It might seem a really stark contrast at first. A small, silent museum to the past in one of the most expensive neighbourhoods in the world, where boutiques jostle for attention with their sparkling shop windows and priceless clothes. A district that makes ostentation its signature, which in itself is a necessary element for the fashion industry, as confirmed by the designer Satoshi Kuwata. And I think it's really important because that really shows one of the stage where you're at. For example, if I have the store there, that means I'm financially successful. So I think um, definitely it's a necessary for industry. But the district has not always been this way, as explained by the writer Alberto Saibene, who grew up in the neighborhood before it was taken over by the high-end fashion world. What happened? Because the majority of the wealthy Milanese families didn't usually live in Viaspiga, was that the people who lived there were a certain breed of middle-class entrepreneurs or professionals, etc. This was when the shops started to appear. The first boutiques appeared in the mid-60s. The first Linus magazine head office was in Via della Spiga, and this led to a transformation which, as always occurs, saw one shop lead to another, and it rapidly snowballed. In the 80s, when fashion became important in Milan, especially from the 90s onwards, Via Spiga and the district as a whole began to take on the form we know today. It's now over 30 years old, which has enabled this phenomenon to position itself even further. With a hint of snobbery, my father used to say that the quadrilatero had become a duty-free area. That said, in essence, it's okay to be a snob, but it's better not to be one if you can avoid it. So if anyone ever finds themselves around these parts and sees an open courtyard or entrance hall, then they must, without asking permission, take a look inside and see if there's a garden. In the words of Stendhal, who had the word Milanese inscribed on his tombstone in Milan, Milan's beauty is hidden. And there's still a few hidden beauties to be discovered in this neighborhood. Simply look and you will find them. One of these corners of hidden beauty in the district is undoubtedly the Bagatti Valsecchi Museum, created by the two Bagatti Valsecchi brothers who restored their mansion in Via Gesù at the end of the 1800s, transforming it into an authentic time capsule that takes visitors back in time to the Renaissance. Let's listen to architect Alessia Garibaldi as she describes the museum. It's a museum, a house inspired by the Renaissance, that was designed by two brothers around a personal collection that spans the 14 and 1500s. This makes it a really interesting project because um, it's a modern concept, a contemporary concept. We often get our clients, collectors who ask for a lot of wall space, to think of the project in a more scenographic way to enhance the collection. There are those that say every collector is a sort of victim of their own collection. They're dependent on each other. And, in effect, you can perceive two things at Palazzo Bagatti Valsecchi. An enormous passion and a desire to welcome. 
There are many Latin phrases around the building that speak of this desire to always welcome the visitor. And this helps us understand how the building was specifically conceived in relation to its visitors. It, it has all these symmetries that really enhance the tapestries and art objects. This really makes it a well-thought-out house. Yes, it was a house to be lived in by the two brothers, but also a place to exhibit a collection of antique objects and paintings. So it has all these symmetries, the two courtyards. It's a house connected to two roads, so it really gives you this sense. So, obviously, in this introverted Milan, where the great families have always tended to keep their doors closed to the outside world, the Milanese do not really know a lot about these ancient homes because they're not open to the public. Whereas Bagatti Valsecchi has this long tradition of, mm, more than being welcoming, which it clearly is with its colours, the way it is laid out, um, has a unique allure. Inside this special house museum, we find subtle references to the profound and enduring ties that Milan has with fashion. For example, the Galleria delle Armi, or Arms Gallery, reminds us of Milan's production of refined ceremonial armour, almost the haute couture of 16th-century men's fashion. The Bagatti Valsecchi cabinet, which is arranged as a wardrobe, shows us splendid black-and-white photographs of the two extremely elegant brothers on horseback or velocipede. But the collection doesn't just feature men's fashion. Many intriguing female figures have inhabited or visited the mansion. One in particular was the Venetian Countess Elsa Albrizzi, a pioneer of motor racing, who came second place in the 1899 Padua-Verona-Treviso-Padua race at the wheel of her Benz, demonstrating once more, as cited in the parchment that celebrates the victory, her incredible bravery and iron determination. The presence of these women can still be felt when visiting the Bagatti Valsecchi, which, together with the nearby Palazzo Morando that hosts temporary exhibitions on the history of costume and fashion, is a perfect cultural complement to a stroll amidst the boutiques of Via Monte Napoleone and the Quadrilatero della Moda, the fashion district. The Museo Bagatti Valsecchi and Palazzo Morando are both just a few minutes' walk from the stop Monte Napoleone on the yellow metro line M3. Milan is a fashion capital all year round, but there are two key moments when fashion takes control of the city. It's the Milan Fashion Week, which, together with London, Paris and New York, is one of the big four of the most important fashion weeks in the world. The autumn-winter collections are usually presented in February and March, while the spring-summer collections are in September and October. During these periods, the city is full of models, reporters, buyers, photographers. Taxis are impossible to find, and the museums, palaces and industrial architectural spaces are transformed into locations for spectacular fashion shows and parties. It's an exciting and multifarious site, which, for a few days each year, sees Milan play a leading role on the world stage. 
This is the end of this episode, but don't take your headphones off just yet, because as promised, in the next few episodes, we'll be exploring other aspects and districts of the Milan fashion capital. To listen to the next episodes, follow us on your favorite podcast platforms or visit www.casemuseo.it where you can also buy the Casa Museo card to visit the Poldi Pezzoli Museum, the Bagatti Valsecchi Museum and Villa Necchi Campiglio at a discount price. The Boschi di Stefano House Museum is free to visit. <laughs>